här är ett poddradioprogram från Studentradion 98,9. Alla våra program hittar du på studentradion.com eller i vår mobilapplikation Studentradion 98,9. Av upphovsrättsliga skäl är musiken förkortad. In the field of human country, but so much owed by so many to so few. Utrikespolitik. Det är inga pajaskonster. Det är inte hehehehepep. Hello and welcome to Radio UF at Studentradio 98,9. We are bringing back an old favorite of trying to predict the future. I'm in the studio today with Isak, Melina, and uh, Greta Scott would be joining us, but we'll get to that soon. What are what are you all going to talk about? I'm going to start with uh, what will the pandemic look after this? A bit on what restrictions will still be in place and whether this will last forever. All right. Yeah. And I will be talking about the upcoming Iranian elections. All right. Greta would um, talk about Belarus, but uh, she she has had an accident and we can neither confirm nor deny that it was one of Lukashenko's agents <laughs> that did it. Uh, but you'll, 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 you'll hear why. Uh, my name is Melker Hörner and I will be talking about autonomous weapons. And additionally, this will be the last episode of this season mm. and perhaps for a while since the show will go on hiatus after the summer, possibly during the rest of 2021. So tune in for some interesting predictions and stick around for me getting sentimental about the temporary <laughs> halt of Radio UF at the end. Put on your wizard's hats and I predict that you will hear us again in circa three minutes. Hit it. That was Gold City by Ice Age and we are predicting. So let's look into the crystal ball and see what's up with the COVID-19 situation. Yes, so starting off. I remember when I was in high school and a new game came that we all played on our phones called Plague Inc. with the intent purpose of eradicating humanity. And especially since uh, the transition to 2021, I've uh, personally had the growing feeling that it might actually be the situation we're living in. Because you can see with the new mutations from all over the world, we talked a bit remember in the fall about the British strain and then mm-hmm. the South African strain and the continuous worsening situation in Brazil and India. And given enough time, you uh, quite easily win the game of Plague Inc. Because you just get enough evolution points, you modify the disease and then boom, complete organ failure and everybody dies within a couple of days. Nice. Mm. <laughs> I guess on a more somber note, in contrast, this is not the first time humanity has experienced plagues. This seems to be a repeating or reoccurring pattern, especially since we've moved into the cities and we are clustered closer together. It varies how long it takes. And I recently read that uh, this might not be the first time we experience SARS too, as it is now. There is a speculation that the similar or the pandemic of the end of the 19th century was also uh, caused by SARS. Now, looking back in history, you can think of especially like the Spanish flu, which ravaged the world after the First World War. And 
we still live with it today, though now it's classified as in scientific terms as an endemic disease, meaning it spreads within the country. It doesn't die out necessarily. It can be cyclical, but it doesn't have a R value of over one. So for every one person that gets infected, another person, uh, you only transmit it on average to another person, just like we get with the seasonal flus uh, and as well as our um, colds. And we want that to be below one because then the disease is dying out, right? Yes. Uh, seemingly it can vary because apparently if some types of, or for example, for COVID, it seems like like most plague or like most diseases, the winter is a specifically beneficial season as we're more indoors and it's easier to transmission transmit the disease just like every parent knows how februari in uh, swedish where everybody takes leave to take care of the six children during the month of february so to a degree even though we've been through rough times and currently it looks like we have some rough times ahead still there is always going to be an end to it because apparently our genetic uh, makeup always adapts to a degree where even when a plague like this or disease like this becomes endemic, uh, the symptoms becomes less severe because we adapt to uh, better handle the disease and not just in terms of herd immunity. Even though, So even though we get sick with it, it won't be as much uh, or probably on the same level as the common cold. Mm-hmm. All right. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to predict that the next song is going to be named Good Grace. Let's see if that's true. Welcome to Strandtrollinitiota,9. You just heard um, Good Grace by Patrick Page II and another person, right? Yes, uh, Obana Bam. Thank you. And we are listening to Radio UF and we will be moving on to the Iranian elections. What do we predict? Absolutely. Another event to watch closely in the next few weeks and that will probably acquire a certain resonance on the international scene is the Iranian presidential elections. The first round will be held on June the 18th. And last Tuesday, the Council of Guardians has disclosed the list of candidates authorized to run for the presidency. Iranians are to designate the successor of Hassan Rouhani, outgoing president and leading figure of the moderate current, as his second mandate is about to terminate. The Iranian constitution indeed indicates that the president is elected for a four years mandate, renewable only once. But before we delve more into power struggles and Iranian internal politics, what's the exact role of the Iranian presidents? As the American think tank Council on Foreign Relations explains, while the president is officially the highest elected office in the Islamic Republic of Iran's bureaucracy, he remains subordinate to the supreme leader who must sign the decree of the elected president. The supreme leader serves as the final arbiter on foreign policy, media, nuclear-related decisions and military and national security. 
For instance, he is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces and controls the intelligence services. The supreme leader thus has the power to declare war or peace. He also appoints six theologians that make up half of the Council of Guardians, the powerful body overseeing parliamentary activity and responsible for vetting presidential candidates. The president, meanwhile, carries out the functions of the executive, as outlined in Iran's constitution. His duties range from appointing ambassadors and cabinet ministers to planning and executing the national budget. But going back to next June's elections, out of seven selected candidates, five belong to the ultra-conservative movement. As the Qatari news channel at Al Jazeera puts it, none of them is a prominent reformist or, or pragmatist. The Council of Guardians caused an upset by disqualifi disqualifying leading contenders, including former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. The invalidation of the candidacy of former parliament's speaker and ultra-conservative Ali Larijani has further fueled speculation that the election is de designated to be uncompetitive with a view to clearing the road for the leading candidates, Judiciary Chief Ebrahim Raisi, the BBC affirms. The BBC speaks of a selection rather than an election. And Raisi is the most known candidate of the seven hopefuls, with opinion polling previously showing his anti-corruption campaign drew Iranian support. He's also believed to be a favorite of Iran's 82-years-old supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Ebrahim Raisi had obtained 38% of the vote in the 2017 elections, just after Hassan Rouhani. If he wins the popular vote, Iran's relationship with the U.S. could become tenser, as ultra-conservatives are less inclined to adopt a conciliatory tone with the West. This discussion happens while negotiations are currently going on in Vienna to try to save the Iran nuclear deal, also known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Essentially, diplomats are working on a plan detailing how Iran would roll back recent nuclear program advances in exchange for widespread U.S. sanction relief, as the media Politico explains. According to their diplomatic sources, an agreement may be within sight before June the 18th. And Iran has become one of the main players in the Middle East over the past year. So, all eyes on Vienna and the Persian Gulf, guys. Definitely. We'll be right back. You just heard Transparent Soul by Willow and Travis Baker. Du lyssnar på Studentradion 98,9. This is Radio UF. Thank you. And we are picking up our tarot cards and giving ourselves a reading. Oh, sorry. Uh, oh. Yeah. And in the future, we see something interesting happen in Eastern Europe. But we're, we have to give a shout out to Greta Scott, our wonderful broadcaster that sadly couldn't make it, but still, like the absolute trooper she is, sent us her Prata, and we will now be reading it for you. So, starting the, us off. Yeah, starting us off. One thing I often say is that political scientists are terrible at predicting things. The best example of that is when the so-called sociologist failed to predict the fall of the USSR. As a student of political science, I must be even worse. <laughs> so, wish me luck as I make some tentative predictions about the future of Belarus. Back in November, the protests in Belarus looked set to be 
a velvet revolution, ensuring dramatic change in the medium term. Few people expected Belarus to be reformed overnight. Strong state control, a lack of elite support for change, and Lukashenko's policy of blocking opposition's access to institutions would all slow the inevitable revolution. In November, the opposition seemed strong. Unlike in previous years, they were united by a common goal of removing Lukashenko. Every time an activist was jailed or exiled, a new one would appear. But much has changed these past months, as we discussed in an episode two weeks ago. There are many reasons why we may not see a democratic Belarus for some time. The opposition has become weaker, less united and far more repressed. Moreover, although hundreds of officials have already defected, most officials have incentives to remain loyal to Lukashenko's regime, namely the material perks of their high-status positions. Additionally, repression has been ramped up to the max. Lukashenko's power is very much reliant on the secret police and his inner circle, all of whom have been placed in protest hotbed areas, tasked with suppressing demonstrations and supervising the local administration. In December, Kenneth Yalovitz predicted that, provided these personnel remain loyal, Lukashenko could survive another year, although he would be increasingly reliant on Russia. Meanwhile, the Kremlin is looking for a more pliable successor to Lukashenko, who could well be backed by Belarusian officials if their jobs are guaranteed. The Kremlin has been pushing Belarus into constitutional changes which could limit, would limit uh, Lukashenko's power and prepare him for his ultimate exile. So for now, Lukashenko can count on Russia's help, but we can expect the Kremlin to find a replacement at some point. We can therefore assume that the Kremlin will avoid using force in Belarus so as not to turn the population against Russia. It also seems clear that Russia is trying to draw Belarus further into its sphere of influence by isolating it from the West. This was made even clearer a few days ago when Lukashenko further isolated himself from the EU by forcing a passenger flight to land in Minsk instead of Vilnius. The day after, Lukashenko signed into law a series of legal amendments in order to further restrict future protests, making it compulsory for all mass events to be authorized by local authorities and preventing journalists from participating in any mass events. But there are also reasons for hope. Previously, mass protests have been prevented by strict information control, which has succeeded in hiding Lukashenko's crime and economic mismanagement. Not so today. Four out of five Belarusians are online, something which has both facilitated mobilization and spread information. This is particularly aided by the social media platform Telegram, which has grown in importance as more and more independent news sites have been shut down and journalists have been arrested. The pandemic has increased criticism of the regime and general unrest, feeding the pro-democracy movement. Moreover, Belarus's economy is struggling, and a further downturn could intensify the protests, leading to a national strike and a split in the elites, or even pushing Lukashenko into dialogue. What's more, the collapse of oil prices has reduced Russia's willingness to offer financial backing, which might further weaken the regime. Weaken the regime, sorry. Lukashenko himself has even acknowledged that he might not serve out his five-year term. 
As for the international reaction, the EU has been quick to react to the grounding of the passenger jets. They have unanimously imposed new sanctions on Belarus, something which previously had been blocked by EU members, member states such as Cyprus. They have also decided to close European airports to Belarus's national airline and instruct their own carriers to avoid Belarusian airspace. What's certainly true is that this latest offense by Lukashenko has pushed Belarus back to the top of the EU agenda, as it is perceived as a direct attack on the EU sovereignty, rendering all EU citizens partial to air travel Belarus's hostage. With the Russia-US summit in June fast approaching, it is likely that the US will assume a greater role in promoting democracy in Belarus and condemning the Kremlin's support of Lukashenko's regime. Welcome back to Radio UF. You just heard every second by Mina Okabe. And that is the uh, song of the week, right? Yes. All right, cool. And now it's my turn to do some predictions. The idea of killer robots is something we already know very well, to the point where serial killers in media tend to be portrayed as devoid of emotion and described as robotic. And this is not even mentioning the metallic robot horrors of War of the Worlds, The Matrix, and who could forget Terminator. So it's not surprising, but also terrifying, that there is now attempts to bring these monstrosities into the real world. These fully autonomous weapon systems is a frightening concept indeed, The UK, Russia, Israel, China, the US and South Korea, and most likely every country that can afford it, are working on developing some form of autonomous weapons. But what is fully autonomous weapons? The NGO coalition called Campaign to Stop Killer Robots described them as weapon systems that would select and engage targets on the basis of sensor inputs, that is, systems where the objects to be attacked are determined by sensor processing, not by humans. And the killer robot is a very attractive thing for militaries. The least popular part of war are, surprise, surprise, that your soldiers and that your civilians will get hurt. We can look to most modern conflict for examples of anti-war movements caused in part by the casualties and damages caused by the conflict. But if no lives are lost on their own side, people might not find the war as objectable. In addition to this, it is quite difficult to teach people to kill other people. So if you could just press a button and have a robot do the killing for you, that would be a solution to that problem. But many more problems arise. Autonomous weapons would not be held by any moral codes and the new so-called cyber soldiers focused on using uh, what could be called hacking to fight wars. They could pose a real threat towards these weapons. Someone could hijack an autonomous weapon and set it to hurt civilians. And this could be the new phase of terrorism or even regular warfare if we continue to develop autonomous killer robots. And this is all sci-fi stuff for now. And it is most important to realize that this will only happen if we allow the development of autonomous weapons to continue. But the most dangerous and closest in time threat, in my opinion, is not Skynet or Terminator robots. It is that we remove yet another person from life and death decisions. I don't know about you in the studio or the good folks listening, uh, but I am far from impressed by the algorithm used today. If I would go off YouTube commercial this week, YouTube thinks that I'm a far-right Vietnamese woman, when none of this is actually the case, believe it or not. Um, 
What I want to say is that I would not trust a computer to recommend me music or order me dinner, and I would never trust one to distinguish between who is a civilian and who is a soldier in an armed conflict. We already see the hurt brought on civilians from regular warfare, and removing the human component from this altogether would make wars and the pain they cause easier to justify, and it would remove inherently human characteristics such as compassion from the equation together, now that real people won't need to go into combat. I think this is wrong with autonomous weapons, and the good thing is that a lot of people agree. I've been interning at a conventional weapons control organization, and from what I have seen, there is a robust and growing opposition to the development of killer robots. 61% of people, including the European Parliament, and just recently the International Red Cross, came out supporting the ban of fully autonomous weapons. So we need to think about this. I think that we need to be loud and vocal about this, because when the murder bots are out of the bottle, there will be no way to put them back in. Thankfully, we have some time to educate ourselves and to spread the word. We need to remain vigilant in preventing the development of technologies that could be used for these purposes, and we must at no point remove the human element from the ultimate moral decision-making, matters of life and death. You just heard Fireblind by Sana Sea. And uh, yeah, speaking of predictions, I predict that some of you listening will be looking for an internship next turn. <laughs> and do I have the tip for you? For the past couple of months, I've been interning with the Parliamentary Forum on Small Arms and Light Weapons, which I have enjoyed very much. To get this internship position, I used Föreningen för Utvecklingsfrågor, FUFs, internship program. FUF is a civil society organization that wants to inform about and create discussions regarding global development and the role of Sweden on the world stage. By sending a CV and a personal letter to them, they will match you with some of the 40 organizations that they are in contact with. And this includes organizations like the Swedish development agency SIDA, as well as other organizations connected to global development. FUF also holds a course parallel to the internship which helps you develop skills that will serve you well when you move on to looking for jobs after your education is finished. I am very happy with this program and I warmly recommend applying for it next term in early September when it's, when it's open up for new applications. The only thing you need is to be a member of FUF and be admitted to an internship course at your university or högskola. You can find more information about this at FUF's website, which is FUF, as in Foxtrot Uniform Foxtrot, dot SE. Welcome back, and uh, we are continuing with our predictions. I forgot to say the name of the song. Uh, China Doll Demo by Bored at My Grandma's House. Radio UF at Rent Radio 98.9 is who we are listening to. And we will continue doing our predictions. And we are thinking about points of contention around the world. Um, so what are your ideas? What will happen next? Currently, as I'm very interested in the Asian region, you can see, especially with the coup and the development situation in Myanmar, uh, the South China Sea will be uh, probably a point of contention for decades to come especially because a lot of trade goes through this area. Not only do you have Myanmar as well, close by, you also have the giant in the, the, giant in the north in this part, or the giant in the east for us, as well as 
the dispute between both Hong Kong and China as well as Taiwan and China, which, if the situation doesn't change much, will definitely be a point of conflict in the years to come. Definitely, definitely. But uh, to talk about a region that we don't really hear about, um, I've read that Samoa's political crisis deepens as two rivals claim prime ministership. And yeah, um, I think the former Samoan prime minister refuses to step down and to leave uh, the country's leadership to Fiamme Naomi Matafa, who won last month's election. So that's definitely also something to, to look at. This being an island in the uh, Indo... No, wait. <laughs> it's really far off the right side of Australia, basically. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah middle of the ocean. Um, close to the Polynesia. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yes. And something that I found really interesting is uh, we've been talking about the democratic backslide for a very long, long time. Um, because we, there's a lot of states in the world that isn't really democracies, but they aren't really dictatorships either. And I think when you do that, you remove the pressure valve that is democracy and you remove the iron fist that is uh, brutal dictatorships. And something interesting, there seems to be a lot more of people movements demonstrating against the regimes in a lot of autocratic states around the world. And if we're lucky, this might be a positive sign that democracy is making a comeback. The people aren't going to take it anymore, perhaps. And yeah, we can see that in Belarus, for example. This also may be a potential risk as countries still, or leaders still wanting to cling to power might then step into a more autocratic rule to maintain control of the country. Yeah, and we might also see coups within coups as in Mali recently, mm-hmm. yeah. which is uh, interesting. I feel like this is also another trend, you know, like a coup happening in the coup or like the military coming back to um, throw out the transitional regime that had yeah. been established right after a coup and so on. Yeah, like Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, it seems to be a natural result of uh, revolutions because you can usually unite a group of people against a common enemy. But once you topple that common enemy and it's time to divide the power amongst yourself, it can be very tricky. And then infighting can lead to, as we discussed, coups within coups in that sense. Yeah, and something that is really scary and ties back to what I discussed is that what if we removed every single military person and had like 10 people in a bunker that can control killer machines? You wouldn't need the support of people, just killer robots. So that's another reason to keep an eye on that technology. Yeah, the manpower needed to maintain an iron fist of a country could sharply decrease in the future. Yeah, turns out that people don't like oppressing other people. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? Yeah, all right. Uh, We'll be back right after this. You just heard Survival of the Strongest by Moon King. Du lyssnar på Studentradion 98,9. This is Radio UF. And potentially, or last time for this season, maybe last time for 2021, as Melke pointed out, but a bit of that more in a bit. Yeah, before um, the very nostalgic moment <laughs> comes, <laughs> I have a question for you, Isak. Mm-hmm. What is the future going to look like? How would you describe it in one word? I guess, since I'm ever the optimist, I would say gloomy. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I mean, I'm always, I feel like 
in some situations, especially concerning people, I could be very optimistic because I expect, or I wouldn't expect anyone to uh, behave in a poor manner. But when I consider things for myself, I always take a very different turn. But who knows? It's still not total darkness, so at <laughs> least right. that's upside. <laughs> Great. Yeah. How about you, Malina? Uh, I would say fluid because it's ever-changing and I feel like a new pattern in relationships nowadays is like fluidity. So for me, 2020 and 2021 is fluidity. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to yeah. see. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing that jumped into my mind was, believe it or not, bright. Um, mm. I don't know. Yay. I I feel re- I feel really positive. Although there's so many horrible stuff going on around the world, I think that we are more and more aware every single day. Mm. People are mm. are more engaged, mm-hmm. and I think that's a good sign. That's how things are going to change, and hopefully for the better. I think. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. What what are your futures? What are you going to do during the summer? Like so to I'm going first and foremost. I'm going to try my very best to take a proper vacation after my final exam because I realize that sounds good. <laughs> it's so hard to just take time off studying and not feel stressed and just relax and not worry too much what you do with the day. And I have realized, especially during these times, that it can be so difficult. And if you procrastinate one day, it's very difficult to then justify taking another day seemingly off <laughs> yeah, when you already yeah. had one. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. And I'm going to go to Thailand to keep on studying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so And procrastinating as well. <laughs> I will see if I can find a local radio to keep on uh, bothering listeners with my thick French accent. <laughs> How about you, Melker? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, I'm, I, now I'm going to get really nostalgic. But on the 22nd of February 2018, three and a half year ago, I recorded my first Radio UF episode. And it was pure circumstance that I joined. Uh, but now I've been here for probably 40 episodes, counting this one. Ooh. Violin playing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> and each episode has been more fun than the last. And so I'm a bit sad that we will now go on a hiatus. Uh, but I've had a blast. And I hope that you on the other side of the transmitter has had as good of a time as us in the studio has. There are so many wonderful memories of the time spent with so many wonderful people here in this studio. Mm. I will carry these memories with me and cherish them for the rest of my life. But if you haven't gotten enough of the sound of my voice, I can tell you that I'm planning on recording a slightly irreverent history and politics podcast on coup d'etat that will probably hit podcasting services in early September. The working title is Armed Men Storming Buildings, so look out for that. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I want to say stay healthy, stay safe, and enjoy every conversation. I sure have, and I will continue to do so. You have been listening to Radio UF at Studentradio 98.9. With me in the studio, we've had... Melina Froidjou. And Isaac Johansson. And this is Melke Hörner, signing off. Goodbye, everyone. And stay safe. Goodbye.
Det där var en poddradioversion av ett program från Studentradio 98,9. Alla våra program hittar du på studentradion.com eller i vår mobilapplikation Studentradio 98,9. Att lyssna fritt är stort, att lyssna rätt är större.